Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Monday, June 12th. Housing densification is on the radar of City Hall, but are the plans realistic? We get the thoughts of Sasha Senkova, professor at the University of Calgary School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape. Are you planning a summer road trip? Well, if that's the case, do you know how much you should budget for gas? We get a summer gas price forecast from Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. To donate or not to donate. Requests for donations at the store cash register have become more and more commonplace these days. But have you ever questioned exactly where the money is going and if these charity campaigns are really making a difference? We discuss with charity consultant Gina Rothstein from Karma and Sense. Calgary City Hall in a bit of a waiting pattern right now on affordable housing policies after an interesting week that saw councillors flip-flop on recommendations from a, ta- a special task force. They first voted it down, then brought it back and passed an edited version that allows for more public feedback. Well, with all the confusion and the news surrounding the housing issue here in Calgary, we wanted to bring in an expert on the matter, get their opinion on how the city should approach affordable housing. For that, we turn this morning to Sasha Senkova, a professor at the University of Calgary's School of Architecture, Planning, and Landscape. She's also authored 25 books and research monographs and over 70 articles on urban policy, regeneration, urban sustainability, and housing policy. Good morning to you, Professor. Appreciate your time. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. In your opinion, where does Calgary stand in terms of housing, affordable housing, and meeting the needs of all that live here in our city? We've been looking at these patterns of change for some time, and um, I I think that as a result of the pandemic, the housing crisis in in Calgary really reached proportions that um, should not be a surprise for anyone that is dealing with um, planning and and social policy. But it's reached a point of no return where indeed action by different levels of government and and also many nonprofit organizations and developers and builders is urgently required to make sure that our city can remain competitive and and livable. Um, The the housing crisis is is affecting uh, more than half of the people in the city that are unable to afford access to a sort of home or even rent. And the wait list for uh, subsidized housing, which is um, very low compared to its share in the other large cities across Canada, um, has uh, reached um, 8,000 households. Wow. Uh, Professor, a bit of a report card here. We'll, we'll look at what the, the city could improve on through your eyes, what they've done poorly, perhaps, on at this point, and what they've done well. So let's start with, in, in your opinion, what has the city done well in planning as far as housing is concerned to this point? I, I think that uh, the, the city has um, uh, ambitious uh, goals and, and plans, and, and certainly... Uh, has maintained um, efforts to uh, create um, sustainable models of of urban development that are still premised on extensive growth. Uh, We are continuing to sprawl, and uh, we've done this extremely well. Um, If the city maintains a commitment to to actually accommodate new growth and and housing provision, uh, where the split 
perhaps is 50-50% in existing areas and 50% in greenfield developments, we would have um, a better model and, and one where indeed households on average spend 30% uh, on, on their household budget on housing and another 20-22% on transportation costs. However, we are hinging the balance in the other direction where indeed extensive growth and rolling out the carpet of single family homes has become business as usual. And that is placing Calgary in the league of uh, sprawling cities, but also cities that are becoming more and more socially segregated and, and exclusive in, in many ways. Yeah, so I, that's kind of leads me to my next question then. So, you know, a lot of homeowners are concerned about increased density in their community. Should they be then as we see what's happening in the city of Calgary? Um, in fact, with respect to density, we are achieving better performance and, and more efficient use of the land in the new communities where the required density for some time is 12 units per acre and up. And in fact, in existing more mature neighborhoods, we have density which is as low as 4.5 to 6 units. So the density uh, allows a lot more opportunities for intensification and uh, really adjustment of uh, existing neighborhoods that we have so that we can support the services that are very much needed, like the schools, the community centers, the the green spaces, as opposed to really closing them down And uh, because we don't have enough people in, in those communities. They're thinning out. And uh, what we end up having is uh, a lot of housing and a lot of people without homes. You know, when we look at an issue, any issue when it comes to, to, to a city, a city the size of Calgary, one million plus, uh, to find our own solutions, incredible. And you've got to take great pride in that as a city. But can we take uh, examples from other cities in our nation or across the globe that have housing right and are on the right track and have had success from your experience? Well, it's a, it's a great question, and it's a, the million-dollar question, isn't it? Um, there are a lot of cities around the world that have made a long-standing commitment to the provision of affordable housing. And a lot of these cities are actually in Europe, um, cities such as uh, Paris, uh, Vienna, London, to mention a few, but also cities such as New York. 20% um, of the housing in New York is, is actually public housing. So it's not just a question about density and, and being able to share the neighborhood and the precious resources and opportunities the city can provide, but it's also about diversity of housing options so that uh, they're laddering opportunities for people to get into the rental market and then transition to home ownership and, and indeed also um, be able to live with dignity when they age and, and they want to age in place. So I think it's also a question about diversity of different types of ownerships and, and also about a mix of people and, and different housing options in one place uh, so that indeed that uh, sharing of, of a city and a neighborhood and the place is, is really something that uh, people enjoy. And, and that works really um, in, in a great way in, in uh, some, some places around the world where 
indeed the requirement to have 20 to 25 percent of the housing in any neighborhood designated as affordable social or non-profit housing is um, part of the planning requirements and has been like that for a very long time over a hundred years so the re really places and models where um, there's been a lot of experimentation and it's proven that it works. And and we could also look at some of the older neighborhoods in, in our historic cities, places in Vancouver and also Toronto, but also Cliff Bungalow community in, in Calgary, where the older housing really provided a lot of opportunities for people to live together at, at the starter home and yeah. and also sharing with a, what it used to be in the old days with the lodger. Um, mm -hmm. That is not necessarily a very revolutionary model, but it's one that um, we should we should embrace and, and we should try to implement yeah. um, with um, mobilization of uh, changes in planning regulations, but also new partnerships of uh, development industry and, and also policymakers yeah. and financial institutions. Professor, just have to jump in. I'm sorry, we're completely out of time. A very, very important conversation. And thank you for joining us this morning. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Author and professor at the U of C, that's Sasha Tsenkova. As we head towards the summer driving season, we're already seeing gas in the $1. forty-plus range. So what's to come and how is news from the industry affecting prices? For some answers, we're joined this morning by the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, Dan McTagg. Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm fine and uh, maybe even better if I wait a few more days. Oh, why so? <laughs> uh, the markets are really in a bit of a retreat um, and they've been like this for quite some time. You get one good day of uh, information uh, positive uh, bullish information and then it's followed by three to four consecutive days of uh, you know negative uh, news over everything from uh, US federal interest rates uh, sorry US Fed interest rate uh, hikes to slowing demand to all sorts of uh, you know uh, concerns about the health of the global economy so generally speaking that uh, is going to exercise downward pressure on price at a time when during the summer we see Prices actually moving up. Interesting times. In the past few weeks, your head must have been spinning when we <laughs> see the, you know, for example, Suncor announcing 1,500 $1, job cuts total. TC Energy falling with layoffs but didn't disclose numbers. Then, of course, Irving Oil on the East Coast saying it's exploring options for its assets in Canada. Lots going on. Are these all connected? Are, are the majors following one, uh, one another's uh, leads? Uh, that's a very uh, that's a very uh, difficult question because Canada is probably the only nation in the world, uh, certainly a producing nation, that has not one but two carbon taxes. And uh, the second tax, uh, which of course kicks in on July the first, means if you're a refiner, you have to blend a lot more ethanol if you're not buying carbon credits. Um, and that means if you're buying carbon credits, what's happening is that you're uh, you're having to pass those on. Now, if you're a company like Irving. 80% uh, of your work is in the United States. You can't pass them on, and therefore you're stuck. You're competing against uh, other refiners who don't have the same disadvantage or same burden. Uh, as for the rest of the country, I mean, if you're going to signal, as the federal government is doing, that uh, there be no more, uh, beyond these uh, two carbon taxes, uh, that you're going to no longer uh, tolerate internal combustion engines, by the way, good luck with that, uh, you know, you're basically saying refineries don't make any more investments. 
don't uh, meet the ever-increasing demand for products, not just Canada, but around the world. And while we're at it, let's block pipelines. I say that because you have reality uh, staring us in the face, flashing uh, lights at us, saying, you know, this is where the world is going. Uh, and Canada seems to be going in a very different direction, leaving many companies with uh, very few options but to either pack up and go or perhaps wait for federal government grift. I'm from Ontario. You have two companies now, Stellantis and BW, that are uh, together going to cash in $30 billion bucks to make batteries that China's been doing for 10, 15 years at a much more competitive price. So if you're feeling this way, how will all of this, do you think, ultimately affect consumers at the pump as we move forward perhaps into these, you know, summer, July, August months and beyond? Well, I think it's it's going to leave uh, prices pretty, pretty stable. I mean, you have a move by Saudi Arabia to cut production, not once, not twice, but three times. OPEC ne- isn't necessarily going along with the, uh, with the program. We'll see if there's a tightening of supply. Uh, of oil. What it does mean is that at a time during the summer when we have disruptions, when demand is still very strong, especially in the United States for energy, uh, whether it's uh, jet fuel, diesel, or gasoline, uh, this kind of, you know, two worlds operating at different, uh, totally opposite ends of supply and demand being completely ignored uh, by market fundamentals means that we could be in for a shock or a surprise. But there is, you know, for every day where reality begins to dawn, uh, there's several days of uh, let's just get negative about, uh, you know, maybe uh, production not being or uh, demand not being quite uh, what's thought to be in China. Let's look at, uh, you know, maybe Russia is cheating in terms of the amount of oil that's producing and sending to Asian countries. Let's look at, uh, uh, let's look at the U.S. Fed, the S, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which, by the way, that's 200 million barrels has to be bought on the market and re- restored and replenished. Maybe not, but all of these things would dictate that you know uh, prices should be much higher than they are right now. The fact that they are not, I think, leads uh, many to the conclusion that we're in for a bit of a price shock uh, in the not-too-distant future. Just looking at uh, gasbuddy.com, and I'm, I'm seeing between, uh, with the exception of the, the super deals at the Costco's, or the yeah. LFAs, about a buck forty point nine to a dollar forty four point nine. I always love it when you. I don't want to put you on the spot here, Dan. Can give us the, the what we should be paying right now uh, value per liter. With fundamentals, probably another fifteen cents above that, and uh, that would be for the rest of the country as well. But uh, you know, we're not going to see that not not now. And I'm, I'm certainly not one to encourage that. Uh, Alberta has a huge advantage in the sense that it doesn't pay taxes uh, on uh, the provincial side, at least on gasoline. Uh, but uh, there's no doubt that prices are uh, extraordinarily discounted at the time. And this is interesting because it's only going to heighten demand. This time last year, you were paying in the range of about uh, $1.78 to $1.85 for a litre of gasoline. So that in of itself is, uh, you know, is slight cause for celebration, although many of us complain that these prices are still too high. Uh, the reality, however, is that uh, we also have to consider the weakness of the Canadian dollar. You know, last time we saw $70, $80 barrel oil, we also saw, uh, you know, uh, the Canadian dollar uh, trade at or very near the value of the U.S. Uh, greenback. That's important because all of our commodities that we consume in this country are based on U.S. prices. And so taking a one-third haircut uh, adds significantly, not just to inflation, but uh, the reduction of our purchasing power. Dan, always appreciate your time. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Well, thank you for having me today. Have a great week ahead. Thanks, you too. Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy.
Canadians are a generous bunch, and retailers are using that trait to try and raise money for charities by asking for cash at the till while you pay for your bananas, for example. But is this an effective way to donate for both parties? Uh, to help answer some of these questions, we're joined now in studio by Gina Rothstein, who operates Karma and Sense, an organization that provides advice to charities. Good morning to you, Gina. Thanks for coming in. Appreciate it. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, here, before we go further, we, we both were remarking what, what a great name for an organization, Karma yeah. and Sense. Tell us about the organization and how it came to be. Sure. So Karma and Sense is based here in Calgary. We have clients pretty much across Canada. Um, we're a team of six and we advise families as they're setting up their charitable foundations. We work with individuals, helping them think through their charitable giving strategies. And we work with small and medium sized businesses setting up their corporate social responsibility um, programs. And very important. And how does that relate then to this, this discussion that we're having? Because according to research, Canadians donate about $35 million a year at the cash register. And that's a really big number, obviously. So, you know, are, are charities reaping these rewards or where is that money actually going? So for sure, the charities are definitely benefiting. If we think about the business of philanthropy, uh, point of sale giving is the cheapest way for charities to raise money because they don't have to steward the donor. They don't have to plan the events. They don't have to write thank you notes. They don't have to hire somebody to do tax receipts. Um, so it's it's really cheap dollars uh, for for the charities to raise. So yes, the money is getting to the organizations. So sorry, I just want to so yeah. XYZ charity would pay uh, Stan's grocery store for them to collect? How no, not at all. Okay. It might might be like the pink ribbon campaigns. Um, Companies will pay to have access to the pink ribbon to raise money for breast cancer, and breast cancer gets the licensing fees. That's in the this, this, this Susan G. Komen Foundation in the States. Um, but no, the charities are chosen by the companies, and because so charities spend a lot of money raising money, right? On mm -hmm. average, it's about 20 to 25 percent per year of a fundry of a operating budget of an organization goes to bringing dollars in. And so if you have a company that's willing to do the fundraising for you, you're saving the costs associated with raising those dollars. Interesting setup. Uh, let's talk about this, Gina, because there's some confusion. We talked about this late last week about tax receipts. Now, do companies, as a big box grocery store, for example, get a tax break on the money that I donate at the till? And can I get a receipt for a $2 donation and use that on my taxes? What's the, the parameters around that? No and no. Okay. <laughs> it's really easy. Uh, no. So you have, to, the CRA wants to know point of origin of the dollars. And so when a company pools the $2 from 100,000 people in a city, um, there's no point of origin to those $2 and it goes to the charity directly and the charity then can't receipt your $2 back to you. Because it's right? a pool of hundreds. It's a pool of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Okay. Um, so no, so the companies don't get the tax receipt, but neither do you because what you would need to have on your receipt is the charity, re the charity number. Mm. And because the charity number isn't the one that's issuing the receipt at this point of sale, you can't use that to offset your taxes. 
Um, and so it's really, there's, there, it's really, really important for people to know, even if you're collecting those receipts and tallying them up at the end of the day, if you don't have the official tax receipt from the charity, it's a great way to budget how much you're giving every year, but it's not a great way to tax plan because... And the government could potentially come back at you with it, right? Well, you can't put it on your... You can't You even. can't put it on your income tax because you've got no proof okay. of Just those your donations. Word. Yeah. yeah. So kind of going back to what you said, though, we should be confident, you believe, that the charity that is being collected on behalf of, they are getting all that money? Yeah. Okay. You, yeah, absolutely. So I think the, the questions really are, though, around how how are those dollars being leveraged, right? So when we talk about leveraging, it's like, is a company matching those dollars or are they just using the, the consumer dollars to make their brand look good? And so the questions that people should be asking isn't, is my money going to get to the charity? It's what's the so what, right? So if I'm giving my $2 to shoppers for their women's campaign, their yeah. women's health campaign, What's the so what? Is shoppers matching that? Did they put a cap on how much they'll put in? Are they doing co-branding? Are they providing volunteers from their company into the organization? Like there's a whole bunch of different ways that you can leverage your giving. So we call it the four T's. Your time, your talent, your treasures, which is your money, and your ties, which is your network. Mm. And all four of those combined is what makes you a really good philanthropist. Um, and so anybody can do this, right? You don't have to be a multimillionaire to be able to be a smart philanthropist. You just have to be able to under to connect the dots between your two dollars at the till and the volunteering you're going to do in the community. Still, sometimes perhaps more thought than just going to buy a pack of Hubba Bubba gum and <laughs> finding yourself in the middle with the knowledge. Here's another one. Uh, we we heard this from our listeners, and I feel the same way too, to a certain extent, Gina, which is. Guilt. You might have two people bagging their groceries in front of you. The cashier is right beside you asking for your payment, asking for a donation, and there's people behind you. Am I going to be that tight wad saying I don't want to give a dollar or two? Is guilt a part of this process that, that works for the charity? I, I don't know if it works for the charity. <laughs> um, listen, if you feel guilty over $2, I think there's a, a bigger question to be had there. But no, you know, but um, I think that the bigger question is like, what how what's the time that it's going to take for you to think this through so i had the best solicitation i've ever had by a cashier i never get solicited right they just say oh do you want to give two dollars i was at the save on up near cop and the gentleman so i purposely go to the cashiers because a i want to keep people employed but b they're part of my community and so i kind of want to get to know them and this one guy said, we're doing, Savon has partnered with I Can for Kids, which is a local charity that provides meals for children. And he's like, I'm going to ask you to donate either Roundup or donate your $2. But here's why I'm going to ask this of you. I went to their website and this is what I learned. And then he started to spew off the stats about I Can for Kid. And then he said, now, you might not want to give right now, and that's okay, but I would really like it for you to go and check out their website. Wow. Because I really think this is a good organization. So, like, how do you say no to that, that yeah. right? And I think that that's the difference is, like, when you're looking at the debit machine and it just says, do you want to round up? Whatever. But if somebody's going to engage you in a conversation about why this is important and to they're them. they're passionate about it. And they're passionate about it. And it's that emotional, trans it becomes now an emotional yeah. transaction, not just a, 
a debit card swipe transaction, right? right? And so that's, I think that's what's missing from these conversations. Quick question just before we let you go. Does a business receive tax deductions for collecting? So they don't. So they are doing it of their own. Not from your money. They might get a, they might do it like if they're using their own, out of their own profit. Right. But not, not from, from the your money that we yours. donate okay. through the till. Okay. Correct. And really interesting conversation. Boy, we could talk to you probably for hours. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time this morning, Gina. Thanks so much. Gina Rothstein is the founder and principal at Karma and Sense. You can go online, find out more. Karma, obviously with a K, karmaandsense.com.